research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hello and welcome to The Drill Down, where we drill down on cronyism and corruption in the federal government in Washington, D.C. My name is Eric Eggers and I'm in for Peter Schweitzer, who is out uh, on a number of very important missions helping to protect and defend the country. And we have a very important and exciting conversation to have today on essentially what is the direction of this country. Now, I've been working here at the Government Accountability Institute for 11 years, and I've been working with Peter Schweitzer for that entire time. And I remember a decade ago when we were working on a book called Extortion, which was meant to expose the perverse incentive structure for members of Congress in Washington, D.C., and and the ways in which they leverage and abuse their positions of authority to punish private businesses. We were having a conversation with a new member of Congress. His name was Ted Yoho. And he was uh, represented the Alacho County area in Florida. He's actually a large animal veterinarian. And so we thought, hey, here's a new guy who hasn't been corrupted by the swamp-like atmosphere. And so we wanted to meet with him and get his take as a new member of Congress on what is it like to see how perverse and corroding these corporate interests can be. And so we sat down in his office, and he has this sort of folksy way about him. And he said, well, before I talk to you, I have to ask you a question. And he pointed to Peter Schweitzer and says, do you believe we're headed towards socialism? And Peter Schweitzer, because he's much smarter than me and because he knows how to write successful books and get what he wants from sources, said, absolutely. And then he pointed to me. And this is 10 years ago, me, who still thought he was a little bit smarter than he was and uh, had a bit of an independent streak. And he says, what about you? Do you think we're headed towards socialism? And I was like, well, you know, it kind of depends. That's a key word that gets thrown around a lot. You know, education's publicly subsidized. There's a lot of different programs that we might have that we might already have some socialist nature as as a society. Peter Schweitzer is like giving me the evil eye and kicking me underneath the chair. He's like, just say yes and get the man to talk. And eventually we got there. But I I have to say in the decades since that conversation, I can unequivocally say we are definitely headed towards socialism. We do this podcast from Florida and there's a phrase as Ron DeSantis considers a run for president that we want to make America Florida. The counter to that would be if we want to make America California. And uh, I think, unfortunately, what's happening in the White House today under the Biden administration, they're very much trying to make America California. And we're going to have a conversation about what's happening with mortgage rates and who pays for what based on what in just a minute with an expert in the field. But first, consider the, the problem of socializing risk and socializing who pays for what based on, and in a sense, in a way to abuse merit is not just limited to mortgages and a new rule that the Biden administration has put into effect. Three major utility companies in California last month, based on a law passed by the California State Assembly, proposed a fixed income rate utility bill that would essentially say, hey, your utility bill will be higher if you make more money. It doesn't really matter as much how much utilities you use. It doesn't really matter how much energy you use. If you make not that much money, your bill will be less. And if you make a lot more money, then your bill will be more. And so I just thought that's a great example. That's something that's going into effect in the state of California. It might take effect as early as 2025. And you have utility companies in California putting that into place today. 
to say, listen, we're proposing charging utility companies, utility customers, not based on how much energy they use, but how much money they make. And that perverse, I think, and unfortunate and ultimately unproductive trend is actually the way the law works now as of the beginning of May. And so here to talk about the changes in how U.S. government-backed mortgages will charge customers is Roger Valdez, who's the director of Center for Housing Economics and a research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, joins us from the West Coast, where they're very familiar with perverse and unproductive incentive structures. Mr. Valdez, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm well. Now, I was hoping, because this is sort of a, it can be a little tedious. We're talking about mortgage rates. We're talking about penalties and fees that go into closing costs and things. But if you could just big picture, tell the listeners of this podcast what the Biden administration has helped put into effect at the beginning of this month, at the beginning of May of 2023. Well, it's a little, it it is a little bit complicated and it's hard to um, exactly make a succinct explanation of it if you're not a mortgage broker and you're not in the process of getting a mortgage, but what it comes down to is there's some fees associated with originating mortgages, and those are uh, set by the, the, the FHFA, the, the, one of the, the government-sponsored uh, entities that is out there, um, or that works with the government-sponsored spon- entities and sets rules and regulations on how Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac issue mortgage debt. Um, long story short is that they've got a fee schedule that they promulgated yesterday, um, which sort of based on credit score indicates what the charges are going to be um, on a mortgage that's backed by those GSEs, by those um, Freddie, Fannie, Fannie, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Um, and the, the idea is that, and the thing that created the outrage amongst many people has been kind of going on for the last week or two is the idea that if your credit score is higher, you're going to pay more. And if your credit score is lower, you're going to pay less. Um, and just and let's just pause for a second and let that idea seek in. By the way, Mr. Valdez, I have to tell you, you haven't been on the show very long and you've already made Drill Down History. This is the first time anyone's used the word promulgated in the history of this podcast. So congratulations. We'll send you a certificate uh, well, later this week. Yeah, a liberal arts education is a terrible thing to waste. So if you can use a big word here and there, you might as well because otherwise – you know, where, where are you going to use it? Um, no, we're all, we're all very impressed. And just, so just to give some specifics for the concepts that you mentioned, uh, according to a recent analysis, and what you heard Roger Valdez say is that if based on your credit score, good credit actually will now pay more for certain mortgages and bad credit will pay less than you were paying. And to that point, a recent analysis from Bankrate said that someone with a below average credit score of, let's say, 640, who's seeking a $350,000 mortgage with 20% down, Typically, they would have, before this new rule went into place, before the beginning of May of 2023, would have paid $10,500 in fees before these new regulations. They will now pay less than $8,000. They'll pay $7,875. So on the face of it, that's less money that's going to some of these banks, specifically the U.S. government-backed banks like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Conversely, someone with a better credit score, let's say a a 740 credit score, with the same deal, same $350,000 mortgage with a 20% down payment, is now going to expect to pay an additional $1,300 in fees, up from $1,750 to now over $3,000. So you have people who have, for whatever reason, had they've, they've played less well by the rules of modern finance and credit. 
right? They've taken longer to pay things back. They may have missed payments, whatever the reason why you have a lower credit score, but they'll now be charged less than they would have been. And people that have obeyed by the rules will be charged more, right? And, and so number one, is that fair to say? Number two, what are the ramifications of that just big picture and broadly, maybe within the housing market, maybe outside the housing market? Well, if you go if you go back, this has its origins in legislation that was signed by President Trump actually back in two thousand eighteen, and it was the, the origins of it were really the disparity between home ownership um, among black families or black households and white households um, between two thousand ten and two thousand twenty one home ownership that went up by about sixty five percent during that period. Black home ownership just didn't move at all when was stated about 44%. 72% of white households are homeowners. And when you look at credit scores, um, black, black people have um, report about 54% of them report credit scores of 640 or lower, whereas that number is like 37 amongst white, white uh, people. So you also look at just another important thing to look at is that the poverty rate amongst white pop, the white population or the general population is about 11.6%. And it's about 19.5% amongst um, the black population. So the, 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 the thinking here is that if we're going to fix the home ownership disparity there, that 44% and 72%, we need to somehow address this credit score thing because that's what's keeping people from being able to own a home. There's a number, there's a lot of problems with that thinking. Number one, um, credit score is a factor in, in mortgage and setting the rates for a mortgage. Um, but you have to have the income and you have to have the down payment and you have to have a number of other things lined up before you can even be in the market, right? And so um, simply taking the credit score and, and tilting the fees in this direction is not going to help anything all that much because you talked about 20% down on the, on the, those figures that you gave out 20% down is a lot. And usually with these mortgages, you don't, you're not going to put 20% down, but you have to have the cash, right? And, yeah, and, and I think that's an and access to the capital is also an area where you see disparate access. And that's one of the challenges. And I do think in the best and most charitable frame that let's say these rules, as you know, that were signed into law by the Trump administration were attempted to address. Now, I think but here's what's interesting about, I think, the specific implementation of this policy. So the Urban Institute has been on this topic for a while, and they are the ones to, to put like maybe a bigger picture headline on the numbers you shared about disparity in terms of access to mortgage rates. Um, what they would say is that the home there's a 30% home ownership gap now between black and white households, mm-hmm. and it's wider today than it was even in 1960 mm-hmm. when explicit housing discrimination was still legal. So let's admit, I think we could say that, that access to home mortgages is a problem, and it's a problem across racial lines. And there's probably a lot of different reasons for that. And so the, the Urban Institute proposed a couple different solutions, one of which I think, I don't know what you think about this, but it said including rental and other monthly payments in credit, credit score calculations, yeah. which would lift credit scores in communities of color, right? So that's a, an idea and a proposal that wouldn't punish people that have played by the rules, regardless of their race. But in fact, would help elevate people that have lower access to money because the reality is, yeah, you get 
the less money you have. It, it And it's a phrase that seems counterintuitive, but it is true. It's expensive to be poor in America mm-hmm. because you pay more money for worse things. You are more taken advantage of by predatory loans, things of that nature. And so that that's just the reality. So that was a proposal the Urban Institute came out with. Another would say to offer targeted down payment assistance, which would help borrowers acquire less debt and lower their loan-to-value ratios, which also would potentially help make mortgages more affordable. Those are two ideas that wouldn't be punitive in nature, but those are not the ideas that were implemented. Why do you think – what's the appeal of punitive lowering the top end to boost the bottom end and is it right to say, maybe specifically with this Biden administration, that that seems to be more of an ideology, ideologically motivated pursuit that they find attractive? Yeah, Margaret Thatcher, when in her last questions, um, questions for the prime minister in 1990, um, she said, uh, in, someone asked her a question about the, the, the disparity between rich and poor. And she said, you would rather have the poor, poor, provided the rich were less rich. And she said, that is a liberal policy. And so that's the nature of the way the the mind, the brain of the socialist and the left-leaning person thinks. They think of the world as being, you know, a pie. And if one person has a bigger slice, it means my slice got smaller. They never think, well, maybe we need to make a bigger pie or make seven more pies and lots of different kinds of pies and make those pies um, widely accessible, they would rather, you know, uh, slice the, 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 the slice, slice the pieces thinner and thinner. Um, and so this is a natural product of that way of thinking and looking at the world, which is if those people who have good credit are getting mortgages, we're going to take something from them and give it to people who have less credit and who aren't able to get into the mortgage market. And that just seems right to them. Uh, That's the way their world works. Instead of looking at it exactly as you pointed out, which is what we've advocated for is include rent in the calculation of the FICO score, Um, include things like uh, consistent payment on bigger balances, because right now one of the problems is you can have a bigger balance on your credit card and that, that hurts your credit score. Um, But if you pay consistently on it, you know, for 12 months and 16 months, you should get a little, you know, a bit of credit for that as well. You do get credit for, for consistent payment, but the balance hurts you. And so there's a number of different factors in calculating the score that could account for good financial behavior, but aren't reflected in just the FICO score. So expanding that, bumping that out. If you have a really good 840 credit score, there's no reason for you to have to be punished or pay more. That's ridiculous. You want people to be motivated by that. Um, and just as a point of clarification, is is this applicable to anybody that applies for a mortgage or is this only people that apply to mortgages through certain programs? Like if I if I went to a bank that's a private bank, this is not going to apply to me. No, but this if you is, go this through is, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae. Yeah, these are the, 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 the GSE-backed uh, uh, mortgages. But those are many of the mortgages that people are going to get into a first-time home or, you know, that that's mm-hmm. going to be typical for people with, with less money and less resources. And, 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 I, and I wanted to point out there's a company called Pinata, which is a for-profit company which has gone into the market of rental, into the rental housing market and is now working with housing providers to report credit scores and sort of give people incentives. You know, so if you pay your rent for six months in a row on time or early, you'll get like a $50 gift card at, at Starbucks or something like that. Plus, they'll report that, that payment to the credit bureaus. 
and you know that and that that and they're making money doing that so you've got this company that's been formed that's making money hiring people creating wealth reporting positive credit information to the credit bureaus to help people with less resources improve their credit and so it's a private market that's a you know free enterprise solution that's not punitive by nature just because the company's name pinata we can celebrate the fact that they're not taking a beating they're actually thriving in this industry and no that's that's an excellent point to make and that's why I would like to juxtapose solutions like that with the current policy and what California is proposing in their utility market. Because, again, that's by definition punitive. And and I think – and here's the key point, and the Wall Street Journal has pointed this out. These socialist policies actually end up being counterintuitively negatively impactful because – and the Wall Street Journal said this. So take a look at – think about many high-risk borrowers brought in under this plan. And this is the Wall Street Journal. will buy homes in low-income neighborhoods. The working class families who already live in those neighborhoods worked hard and saved for their homes. If their new neighbors default and face repossession, nearby homeowners may see their property values fall. So I think that's an example of an unintended consequence. And I would say in the utility industry, it's the same thing. If you're going to essentially subsidize or reward lower income housing with cheaper utilities, well, what's also true, and this gets back to the it's expensive to be poor concept, Poor people tend to have less efficient appliances. They tend to have higher utility bills. And so the only incentive to not have a high utility bill would be to use less energy. But now you're taking that away by lowering the utility bill. And so if we're all sold out on this green energy, we're trying to fight climate change by penalizing wealthy people in California by making their energy bills higher and rewarding poor people by making their energy bills lower, if they're using more energy disproportionately, you might actually also exacerbate our energy use and carbon footprint conundrum, correct? Yeah, you're, you're, incre- you're, 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 you're giving people no incentive to, uh, and you're giving the economy no incentive. I mean, one of the things we discovered uh, years ago when I was working at a think tank that was looking at energy efficiency you know, we discovered that the the, the LIHEAP pro- program, which was a um, energy efficiency, um, uh, I think, it, or it, I can't remember the, the acronym. I might be confusing it with something else. But there was a program at the federal level that would that would button up and tighten up inefficient homes for people with lower incomes. But the problem was that they pr- required prevailing wages. So what would happen is, is you'd look at these older homes and the, it just didn't pencil out. There was no way to make those improvements. So if you, if you eliminate the incentive of the savings of the energy by saying, oh, well, you don't have to pay anything for it, you take away that financial incentive. You take away that savings that you can realize when you make those homes more efficient. So you're absolutely right. There's a kind of strange incentive built into the fact that poor people pay more for energy per square foot than people that are wealthy, because then we can look at, okay, let's create some jobs and put some energy into improving the existing housing stock, making it more efficient, Um, and and in, in so doing, actually help people capture that value and use the savings to pay off the cost of the improvement. And, and those are just – that's the way the free market mind thinks. It looks at it and says, hey, there's an opportunity here. And with credit scores, let's face it, a credit score is just a measure of your financial aptitude and, and where you've been. It's, it, it's just a number that tells somebody this person hasn't paid their bills very well or very often. 
or they've done a great job in keeping track of paying their bills. It, it doesn't tell you the full story of what's behind that, but it, it, it's an indicator. And so if you eliminate it, if you, as Minneapolis has eliminated credit scores for, for, uh, for housing providers um, looking at people who are going to sign a lease. Um, Which is ironic because I think they have the, average, the highest average credit score for people that sign mortgages, correct? Well, people that are – well, I mean the point is, is that if you're going to – if you the idea in Minneapolis was I'm, I'm somebody who's got a, a 500 credit score and I'm going to have a difficult get, time getting a lease because I'm going to get screened out of the process. Well, let's just eliminate the credit score. You can't use it anymore. Right. Let's eliminate criminal backgrounds uh, checks. So if you have a criminal background, I can't see that. Let's eliminate um, eviction, previous evictions. I can't see that. So if I'm trying to write a lease for someone and I can't see their credit score, I can't see previous evictions, I can't see criminal background, how am I going to ameliorate the risk of letting a stranger into, onto my private property? I'm going to have to raise the price. So again, you're going to see higher prices in the rental housing market and that's exactly antithetical to what it is that these people say they want to accomplish, which is affordable housing. So, well, you know, the idea is let's improve people's credit scores. Let's help people transition out of prison effectively by providing some risk reduction. Um, there's an idea in Albuquerque right now to provide um, uh, an offset, a, a, a fund that would offset the risk for people that are riskier um, tenants at least on paper, right? And and so if you can create some of these backstops and some of these innovative ideas, you can accomplish two things. One, you can create some entrepreneurial opportunities and innovation. And second, you can actually get people into housing that they can actually pay for and sustain over time. It's, so. a, it's a great solution. And, and it, I think what you're speaking to, Roger Valdez, is if we actually wanted to solve the problem as opposed to virtue signal or elevate and tout something that we think is politically correct and therefore it's the safe thing to say, then the way we'd go about approaching these and solving the problems would be very different. And then when we, in fact, pursue the politically correct solution, inevitably people suffer. You know, I wrote a book in 2018 about election fraud, and one of the things that we talked about is the way that certain mindsets go to keep voting um, – like to keep voting accessible, right? There's always this tension between election integrity and election security and accessibility. And so the people that have more of a liberal mindset, it's pro-accessibility. And so therefore it's anti-security. What that, How that manifests itself is, is they have fewer safeguards in terms of ID laws, fewer safeguards in terms of trying to keep people like Ill- illegal immigrants from voting. Well, the inevitable consequence of that is that oftentimes illegal immigrants who may not be intending to violate the law, but they might get caught up in Democrat get out the vote operations, they might vote unintentionally. But that's a capital offense from an immigration standpoint. And so it's actually led to a lot of deportations and criminal charges against people that I don't necessarily think meant to violate the law. And you look at what happened in across the country during COVID. And I know in Seattle, you're no stranger to some of the more, uh, let's call it stringent lockdown requirements. And so we've actually seen now with in terms of the places that kept schools closed for longer and kept kids, kept parents who wanted to send their kids back to school from doing so, you've seen them suffer generational losses in terms of learning gains. And so, it, and actually, and in, in the people that have been disproportionately impacted by that are the black and brown communities. And so I think these are just other examples of well-intentioned policies if you want to be charitable about it, but they actually have very negative 
implications and impacts on the populations they're meant to serve and protect. And so I think, unfortunately, these mortgage ideas and policies, these utility bill ideas will fall into those categories. And it just reminds me, Roger, as we close, of something I learned a long time ago from a Florida legislature that said, today's problems are yesterday's solutions. And so I think that, um, you know, I appreciate you helping to identify on this podcast what the problems of tomorrow will be because of the solutions of today. He is Roger Valdez. He has dropped a lot of, I think, very important information and interesting statistics about the realities of what the mortgage climate looks like in this country today and why these these new ramp, these new policies that have put in place as May 1st will be negatively impactful moving forward. Uh, I'm Eric Eggers. This podcast is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. And if you want to find more podcasts like this, in, sometimes actually with Peter Schweitzer, you should visit our website at thedrilldown.com. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.